Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Meriwether Lewis steered his canoe down the Mississippi River and stared in awe at the banks of St. Louis, Missouri. It had been nearly two and a half years since the 32-year-old had left the same shore and headed as far west as he could go. Now, on September 23, 1806, he'd finally completed his mission. During that time, Lewis and his co-captain, William Clark, had survived blizzards and grizzly bears and starvation. They had spent entire months dragging boats over jagged rocks that tore their shoes until their feet bled, but it had all been worth it. Lewis could see at least a thousand men, women, and children lining the shore. Almost all of St. Louis was there to welcome him home. He signaled to his men, who cocked their rifles and fired celebratory shots into the skies. The crowd let out a massive cheer in response. As his boat scraped the river's shore and he climbed back into dry land, Lewis let the sound wash over him. But the celebration would have to wait. So would a bath or a shave or a much-needed rest in an actual bed. Because he had one last job to do. He had to get a letter to President Jefferson with the news that he was alive and he had succeeded. But as he sat and penned an excited letter to Jefferson, Lewis had no inkling of the dark days ahead. Instead of a life of limitless possibility, he would die only three years later with a bloody hole in his head. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the death of American explorer, Meriwether Lewis. This week, we'll cover the cross-country expedition that made Lewis famous. After a triumphant return, we'll see his gruesome end only a few years later. In the next episode, we'll dive into the centuries-long investigation into who may have been responsible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax must update to rewards. In the summer of 1774, Thomas Jefferson sat at a desk in Monticello to write what he would call a summary view of the rights of British America. In it, Jefferson called out King George and railed against Britain's rule over the American colonies. That July, he sent the summary along to the First Continental Congress. A month later, his friends published the letter and spread it from Philadelphia all the way to London. Soon, people on both sides of the Atlantic were talking about Thomas Jefferson and his radical ideas. But as the seeds of the American Revolution took root, Jefferson had no idea that just down the road from his Virginia plantation, something happened that would change the course of his life forever. On August 18, 1774, Lucy Lewis gave birth to her son, Meriwether, just 10 miles west of Monticello. The boy was less than a year old when his father, William, left to prepare for the war that Jefferson was stoking with his fellow revolutionaries. The young Meriwether Lewis never got to know his father. William spent the next four years fighting the British and died of pneumonia in 1779. But every time the young Lewis went outside on his family's farm, the rounded top of Jefferson's home, Monticello, loomed on the horizon. It was a sight he got to know well. At least until everything changed. Six months after his father's death, his mother remarried a man named John Marks. Around 1783, his new stepdad decided it was time that the family left Virginia for a while. William left the whole farm to Meriwether. It belongs to him now. And you just want to take him away? I'm not arguing that we sell Locust Hill. We're just leaving it for a while. Besides, Meriwether is going to love Georgia. It's the frontier. It's an adventure. It's dangerous is what it is. I don't know. I won't move anywhere without Meriwether. And with his father gone, this place means so much to him. How am I supposed to tell him that he has to leave it all behind? You don't have to. I already told him. You did what? He's overjoyed. He asked if we could set off tomorrow. Meriwether Lewis was only eight or nine when he and his mother left the family farm and moved to the frontier of northeast Georgia. It was a rougher, more difficult life than anything Lewis experienced in Virginia, but the boy took to it right away. He began heading out into the wilderness on his own late at night and would reappear hours later with raccoons for the family to skin or eat. Lewis's mother recognized her son's interest in the outdoors and did everything she could to nurture it. Lucy was a brilliant woman who impressed her neighbors with her knowledge of plants and medicinal herbs. Meriwether had endless questions about his new world in the frontier, and Lucy always had an answer. But eventually, Lewis wanted a more formal education. 
When he was 13, he left Georgia to spend his teen years studying math, science, and Latin around the southern U.S. But his education came to an abrupt halt in 1791, when Lewis learned that his stepfather had died. So he abandoned his plans for college and moved back to the family's old plantation in Virginia with his newly widowed mother. By the time he was 18, Lewis was running the 2,000-acre farm. Down the road at Monticello, Jefferson heard all about the man his young neighbor had grown into. Of course, Lewis didn't actually handle any of the farming. This was Virginia in the late 1700s. He had more than 20 slaves to do all the hard work for him. But Jefferson was a slave owner, too, and he seemed to give Lewis the sole credit for the success of his family farm. And he was impressed. In the spring of 1792, Jefferson hatched a plan to send a man out to explore the Western territories. Lewis was immediately interested. He may be running a successful plantation, but he missed the wilds of the frontier, and he was confident he had what it took to make a journey across the continent. Jefferson wasn't so sure. Hello there, Merriweather. Come by to brag about your cherry trees again. Morning, Mr. Jefferson, sir. And you know why I'm here. Have you had a chance to think about my offer? In fact, I have. No, you may be a fortnight older than the last time you asked me, but you're still too young. A journey through the Western territories requires experience and knowledge and expertise and... I have that. You know I do. I... Are you correcting me, Mr. Lewis? Sorry, sir. No, sir. Cheer up, lad. What other fresh young man of 18 can run 2,000 acres like you? There's more in me than just a farmer, Mr. Jefferson. I'm sure there is. But for now, how about you send me over a basket of those cherries? Jefferson's expedition plan fell apart, but the idea apparently sparked a restlessness in Merriweather, and so in 1794, the 20-year-old left Virginia to join the army. That's where he met the man who would become his closest friend and travel companion, William Clark. Clark was four years older than Lewis. He had already climbed up the army ranks to become captain of a company of sharpshooters, and when Lewis joined his group, the pair hit it off immediately. You didn't. Yes, sir, Captain Clark. What was I supposed to do? I was out delivering letters between Detroit and Pittsburgh, and I'd found myself completely lost, and with only one last ration to go, once that was gone. Brilliant shot. But wait. Bear meat? That's right. And luckily enough, I didn't even have to hunt it. I followed some tracks to an abandoned Indian camp. They left some meat behind. It had gone a little mossy, but once I cut the rod off, it was fine. You ate rancid bear meat. And I found it very acceptable. But as close as Lewis and Clark became, Lewis couldn't stay in one place for long. After about a year, he left the sharpshooter's company. He spent the next few years transferring around the U.S. Army until one day in March of 1801, he received a letter from his old neighbor, newly elected President Thomas Jefferson. My appointment to the presidency has made it necessary for me to have a personal secretary. It's a role that would not only aid in my household concerns, but contribute to the mass of information which it's interesting for the administration to acquire. 
If you see the position worthy for yourself, you will make me happy in accepting it. It was an offer that the 26-year-old Meriwether Lewis had to take. He immediately resigned from his military post and headed to Washington, where he moved into a room in the East Wing of the White House. For the next year, he was never far from President Jefferson's side. Lewis, come tell the senator your story about the bear meat again. A decade had passed since Jefferson first tried to send an explorer out west. In that time, Lewis had become a brilliant outdoorsman, military mind, and confidant to Jefferson. And so, when the president decided to try his plan again, there was only one man he wanted for the job. Next, we'll follow Lewis as he sets off across the continent and discovers that the journey is more dangerous than he could have possibly imagined. Listeners, if you haven't had a chance to check out the sizzling new podcast, Blind Dating, now's the time to binge what you've missed before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. In this Spotify original from ParCast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Join host Tara Michelle as she introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio will get to know each other without the distraction of appearances. But once the cameras are turned on, is personality still enough for these strangers to fall head over heels? Or will they say farewell? Connect with new episodes of Blind Dating every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On January 18th, 1803, President Thomas Jefferson penned a secret letter to Congress. In it, he laid out his scheme to send an expedition out west to explore the mysterious side of the continent. The group, Jefferson argued, could build relationships with the indigenous peoples, establish trade, and forge a path all the way to the west coast. And they could do it all for $2,500, the equivalent of roughly $50,000 today. The budget was quickly approved. Jefferson knew that his personal secretary, 28-year-old Meriwether Lewis, was the perfect person for the journey. As he later wrote, It was impossible to find a character who had a complete education in botany, natural history, mineralogy, and astronomy, as well as the firmness of constitution and character requisite for this undertaking. All the latter qualifications, Captain Lewis has. But there was plenty that Jefferson and Lewis didn't know, especially when it came to the West. At the time, Jefferson had heard many rumors about the mysterious territories. 
Some said that there were still volcanoes erupting across present-day Montana. Others thought that prehistoric elephants still roamed the western plains. But there was one theory that Jefferson believed more than any other, the Northwest Passage. The president assumed that all of the western rivers began at the same place, right at the top of the Rocky Mountains. By following the Missouri River up to its source, Lewis and his crew could also find the start of the Columbia River, which they could ride all the way to the Pacific. A waterway from ocean to ocean. Think of it. A clear route of trade from Europe straight on to Asia, with the United States in the middle, controlling the whole thing. I'll find it for you, sir. You have my word. Look at this map. The Missouri runs up the Rockies here, so it stands to reason that the Columbia should start on the other side. It should only be a short portage from one to the other. If we're lucky, the rivers might even connect, and we won't even have to get out of our boats at all. I'm feeling lucky. How about you, Mr. Lewis? I'm about to be the first American to reach the Pacific by land, Mr. Jefferson. Uh, Mr. President, sir. I can't be much luckier than that. And so, with the dream of the Northwest Passage surging through his head, Jefferson sent Meriwether Lewis to Philadelphia to prepare for the quest. Through the spring of 1803, Lewis studied under some of the greatest scientific minds of the day. He took lessons in everything from botany to geography to medicine. And one day, he sat down to write a letter that would change his life forever. On June 19, 1803, Lewis made his friend and former captain, William Clark, an incredible offer. From the long and uninterrupted friendship between us, I feel no hesitation in making to you the following communication. Lewis spelled out all the details of the journey and asked Clark to join him as his co-captain. Believe me. There is no man on earth with whom I should feel equal pleasure in sharing this as with yourself. Lewis waited nearly a month and a half to hear back, but on July 29th, a letter from Clark finally arrived. Dear Lewis, this is an undertaking fraught with many difficulties. But my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip as yourself. And with that, one of the most famous partnerships in American history was born. Together, the duo began building their team. They also stockpiled supplies they needed for their journey, from rifles to camping supplies to barrel after barrel of whiskey. Finally, Lewis and Clark settled down near St. Louis, Missouri, the western edge of the United States, to wait until spring and begin their mission. In May of 1804, Lewis climbed aboard a brand new keelboat with his co-captain Clark and the team that Thomas Jefferson had dubbed the Corps of Discovery. The crew included Lewis's dog, seamen, and a team made up of frontiersmen, soldiers, and an enslaved man named York. Along with the adventure and promise of fame if they succeeded, members of the Corps were promised a good salary and 320 acres of land each. At least everyone except for York, York would be paid nothing for his bravery or service, and when they returned, he would go straight back to Clark's slave quarters, if they returned at all. The Corps of Discovery crossed the Mississippi River and headed up the Missouri River, but the group ran into trouble almost immediately. Their boat was heavy with men and supplies. 
They had to fight to push themselves upstream. Most of the time, the men had to push themselves up the river with long poles, trying their best to dodge the chunks of driftwood that came flying downstream and threatened to punch a hole in their boat. And then there were the bugs. Every night, the core was swarmed by giant clouds of mosquitoes that would sting their eyes and fill their noses and mouths. A few men got dysentery, and soon, many others were suffering from boils and ulcers. It got so bad that one man on guard duty decided to steal some whiskey to numb the pain. When Lewis and Clark caught him, the group sentenced him to a hundred lashes with a whip for punishment. A few weeks later, another man left camp and never returned. The group sent four men out to find him. They finally dragged the deserter back in mid-August, nearly two weeks later. He was sentenced to 500 brutal lashes. Lewis watched as the man he hired for the expedition suffered through his punishment. It was August 18, 1804, his 30th birthday. They had made it to what would be known as Sioux City, Iowa, and the worst was still to come. On September 23rd, the Corps of Discovery were setting up camp near a cottonwood grove on the edge of the Missouri River when three young boys from the Teton Sioux tribe swam across to meet them. Using a form of sign language, they told the Corps that their people lived nearby. One of Jefferson's goals for the expedition was to befriend the Native Americans and let them know that most of their land now belonged to the United States, all thanks to the Louisiana Purchase. So the next day, Lewis and Clark brought the Corps to meet the Teton Sioux leaders. The tribal leaders welcomed the newcomers with a gift of buffalo meat. In return... Lewis offered them some tiny medals, a coat, and a hat. The Teton Sioux looked at the medals, which weren't much more than silver coins, and then up at the men who had wandered into their territory and claimed it as their own. It didn't go over so well. Lewis and Clark tried to invite the Teton Sioux headmen on board their boat for whiskey, but it was far from enough. They demanded that the party of explorers hand over a canoe stocked with presents and real ones, not just more worthless metals. Suddenly, one of the Teton Sioux leaders stumbled into Clark, who drew his sword. Everyone immediately leapt for their weapons. There were hundreds of Teton Sioux warriors. The Corps of Discovery was completely outnumbered, but Lewis didn't back down. He ordered the men on the boat to load their rifles. They trained their one small cannon on the Sioux. On shore, the warriors notched their arrows. Hold your firemen, but keep your aim set. Crusat, translate a message. Tell the Sioux that they're making a very deadly mistake. Tell them that we don't want a fight, but if they start one, we will finish it. Uh, well, Captain, I'm not sure I can translate that. Tell them we have more medicine on board this boat than would kill 20 of their nations in a single day. Tell them... Look, I only know a few Sioux words, and these sentences are pretty complex. Don't give me excuses, Private. What's the point in trying to bluff if they can't even understand what we're saying? I said keep your aim set! But finally, right as it seemed like a bloody fight was going to break out, a Teton Sioux leader named Black Buffalo stepped in. He called for peace and said that he was sad to see the Corps of Discovery leave. Suddenly, the tension dissolved just as quickly as it appeared. 
Lewis and Clark pushed off after spending a couple more days with the Teton Sioux people and continued their journey up the Missouri River. In October of 1804, the group arrived at the Mandan People's Village in what is now North Dakota. The Mandans were welcoming to the Corps of Discovery, and Lewis and Clark decided to build a fort nearby to ride out the winter months. On November 4, 1804, as the Corps hammered together the wooden shelter they named Fort Mandan, a local French-Canadian fur trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau walked up with an offer. He wanted to join Lewis and Clark as a translator, and he could bring one of his two Native American wives along as well. One of them was a 15-year-old pregnant Lemhi Shoshone girl named Sacagawea. Charbonneau used the term wife loosely. Sacagawea was closer to a sex slave. She had been kidnapped by the Hidatsa tribe when she was about 12. A few years later, Charbonneau won ownership of her in a gambling bet. He was about 30 years older than his teenage bride when he took her home and got her pregnant. Lewis and Clark knew they could use an interpreter, so they eventually hired Charbonneau and promised to pay him out of their budget. They agreed that Sacagawea should come along too. She didn't have a say in the matter. Charbonneau decided her fate and that of her unborn child. On February 11, 1805, Sacagawea gave birth to a boy they named Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. And when winter turned to spring and the Corps of Discovery decided to head out again, the newborn Jean-Baptiste came too. First, Lewis and Clark sent some of their men back to St. Louis in the keel boat, along with reports for Jefferson to keep the president up to date about the journey. Lewis wrote one last letter to his old neighbor. At this moment, every individual of the party is in good health and excellent spirits, zealously attached to the enterprise and anxious to proceed. With such men, I have everything to hope and but little to fear. The Corps of Discovery left in April and headed up the Missouri River again. Sacagawea was quickly proving herself to be an invaluable member of the team. She foraged for berries, herbs, and roots, even with Jean-Baptiste strapped to her back. Everyone was in high spirits. But in June, the Corps came to a fork in the river. Neither Lewis nor Clark knew which way to go. The correct choice would keep them on the Missouri, but going the wrong way would waste weeks or months and crush all the excitement and momentum the group had when they had first left Fort Mandan. The Corps of Discovery were convinced that the Northern Fork was the Missouri, but Lewis and Clark weren't sure. Their guts told them to go the other way, and after a brief reconnaissance mission up the Northern River, they made a decision. The Corps of Discovery turned toward the south side of the River Fork, and on board, Lewis secretly prayed he'd made the right call. Next, we'll dig into the final chapter of the expedition and the events that led to Meriwether Lewis's strange and mysterious death. Now, back to the story. On the morning of June 9, 1805, 30-year-old Meriwether Lewis stood at a fork in the Missouri River. He told the Corps of Discovery that he and his co-captain, William Clark, had made a final decision. They would not listen to the group by heading down the north side of the fork. The expedition would head south, 
whether the rest of them liked it or not. Yes, Private Crusat, what is it? Captain Lewis, you know I've navigated the Missouri plenty in my years. I know this river, it's in my blood. And I feel with every inch of my being that the Northern Fork is our best bet. I'm not the only one who thinks so, either. I know your history, Private. And I believe that there is no man among us who knows this river the way you do. But Captain Clark and I have made a decision. We're heading the Southern Way. And that's final. I... Yes, sir. As you wish. Wherever you lead, we'll follow. The Corps of Discovery may not have agreed with Lewis and Clark's decision, but they'd come to respect them as leaders. They trusted them completely. As Lewis wrote in his journal, They said very cheerfully that they were ready to follow us anywhere we thought proper to direct, but that they still thought that the other was the river. Lewis and Clark had heard that there was a big waterfall farther up the Missouri River. So Lewis set out on foot with a scouting party along the shore of their new waterway. If he could find the waterfall, then he'd know they made the right choice. If not, then he should have listened to his men. The first few days turned up nothing. Lewis likely started to worry, and then things got worse. He feverishly awoke in the middle of the night with shooting stomach pains. It was dysentery, and all his medicine was on the boat with Clark. So Lewis thought back to every scrap of information his mother had taught him as a boy about medicinal herbs. He boiled twigs into a bitter concoction and forced it down. Somehow it worked. When he woke up the next day, his fever was gone. So were his stomach problems. But he still hadn't found the waterfall. The scouting party continued on. On June 13, 1805, Lewis looked down the river and saw something strange. Great clouds of what looked like steam or smoke were rising up from the water. He rushed ahead. As he did, he heard a sound that filled him with joy. It was the waterfall. He and Clark had been right after all. They were still on the Missouri. But as exciting as the moment was, Lewis now faced another problem. During the winter, he'd planned that it would take half a day to get around the falls. But this wasn't just one waterfall. There were five falls, some multiple stories high. The only way forward was by a land, dragging their heavy boat behind them. On June 23, 1805, Lewis wrote, Sharp points of earth as hard as frozen ground stand up in such abundance that there is no avoiding them. This is particularly severe on the feet of the men. Some are limping from the soreness of their feet. Others faint and are unable to stand for a few minutes with heat and fatigue. After an agonizing month full of blisters, heat exhaustion, and hailstorms, the Corps finally finished their roughly 20-mile detour around the waterfalls. And once they were back on the Missouri River, Sacagawea came to Lewis and Clark with some stunning news. She recognized a hill in the distance. She had been here years ago, before she was kidnapped by the Hidatsas and sold to her so-called husband. The Corps of Discovery were near the summer camp of her Shoshone people. Lewis and Clark were ecstatic. They'd watched the Rocky Mountains on the horizon get closer and closer each day. If they were going to make their trip up to the mountain and find the Northwest Passage, they needed horses and the Shoshones should have plenty to trade. So Lewis told Clark he was setting off on foot again. 
Early in the morning of August 9, 1805, Lewis and a small scouting party prepared to go in search of the Shoshone. But first, he asked Sacagawea to give him her community's word for white man. Three days later, Lewis finally spotted a Native American man on horseback in the distance. He immediately began shouting the phrase that Sacagawea had taught him. Tababone! Tababone! But it didn't work. The man watched Lewis approach for a minute, then he kicked his horse and rode off. It turned out that Sacagawea had misunderstood what Lewis had asked. The Shoshone didn't have a word for white people. Scholars believe that Lewis was actually yelling something along the lines of stranger or enemy. Discouraged, Lewis snapped angrily at the rest of his party and blamed them for scaring the Shoshone man off. He tried to follow the horse's tracks, but it was no use. The man and his horse were long gone. But their bad luck wouldn't last forever. The next morning, Lewis came across a Shoshone trail next to a stream. They followed it up for a few miles to the place where the creek ended at a spring. And suddenly, Lewis realized what he was looking at. It was the beginning of the Missouri River. He squatted down and took a drink. The road took us to the most distant fountain of the waters of the mighty Missouri, in search of what we have spent so many toilsome days and restless nights. I had accomplished one of those great objects on which my mind has been unalterably fixed for many years. Judge, then, of the pleasure I felt in allying my thirst with the pure and ice-cold water. But that pleasure wouldn't last long. On August 12, 1805, 30-year-old Meriwether Lewis approached the crest of the Rocky Mountains. He had almost made it to the peak. So he took a last lungful of air and continued his trek up the steep ridge. Lewis had spent years poring over books in Jefferson's library and excitedly discussing the Northwest Passage with the president. He had imagined it so many times that he could almost see it already. At the top of this mountain, he would look down to see easy plains rolling out before him and a river that snaked all the way to the Pacific Ocean, sparkling beyond the horizon. But when Lewis forced himself up the last difficult yards to the peak, he stopped and stared. All he saw were more mountains. Some were still covered with snow, even now in the heart of summer. The Northwest Passage was a myth. And everything he and Thomas Jefferson thought they knew was wrong. It had to be a shock for Lewis to realize that there was no easy route to the Pacific Ocean. The rest of the journey would be long and difficult. But he never let it show. At least not right then. He had a job to do, and the next step was finding horses. On August 13, 1805, Lewis finally found the Shoshone, or they found him, he suddenly came face to face with a 60-man war tribe riding full speed towards them. They came to a halt in front of Lewis and his small scouting party. Lewis set down his rifle and did his best to introduce himself to the Shoshone leader, Kamehawait. Soon, Clark and the rest of the Corps of Discovery joined Lewis, and the two captains sat down with Kamehawait to discuss a trade for the Shoshone horses. They brought Sacagawea along to translate. It was a complicated process. 
Sacagawea translated the Shoshone to Hidatsa for Charbonneau, who translated it into French, which was then translated into English for Lewis and Clark. But as she started to speak, her eyes fell on Kamehameha. Suddenly, she leapt up and ran towards him. She threw herself into his arms and burst into tears. It took Lewis a moment to understand what was happening, and then it clicked. Kamehameha was her brother. It had been years since Sacagawea had been kidnapped as a girl and sold into sex slavery, but somehow here she was in the middle of an expedition with a group of Americans reunited with her long-lost brother once again. It was an incredible and profound coincidence. The Corps of Discovery spent the next few days trading for horses and partying with the Shoshone. There was plenty to celebrate. But on August 18, 1805, Lewis wasn't in a very cheerful mood. He slipped away from the festivities to write in his journal. This day I completed my 31st year. I reflected that I had as yet done but little to further the happiness of the human race, or to advance the information of the succeeding generation. I dashed from me the gloomy thought and resolved in future to live for mankind as I have heretofore lived for myself. It was the night of his 31st birthday. Lewis had explored further west than any other American in history, and his detailed notes and research would forever change his nation. But that evening, he found himself slipping into a melancholy mood nevertheless. By the time September came, Sacagawea said goodbye to her brother and Lewis left the Shoshone. The Corps headed into the Bitterroot Mountains to continue west. They had new horses and a few Shoshone guides, but as it turned out, the trip through the Bitterroots would be the hardest part of their entire journey. The weather turned frigid and cold. They ran out of food and water and had to even resort to eating a few of their prized horses. The Corps suffered through freezing temperatures for so long that on September 16th, Clark wrote, I have been wet and as cold in every part as I ever was in my life. I was at one time fearful my feet would freeze in the thin moccasins which I wore. After nearly two weeks, Lewis and Clark finally came across a group of Nez Perce who took pity on the starving and frostbitten explorers. They were all near death. The Native Americans nursed them back to health. The Nez Perce even helped the Corps of Discovery build canoes and point them towards what is now known as Clearwater River in Idaho, which then joined with the Snake River. From there, it was a straight shot to the Columbia River and all the way to their finish line, the Pacific. And in November of 1805, Lewis and Clark finally made it. Ocean in view! Oh, the joy! We are in view of the ocean, this great Pacific Ocean, which we have been so anxious to see. But by now it was winter again, so the Corps of Discovery found a place near what is now Astoria, Oregon, to spend the season. There they built another fort and hunkered down to wait out the rain that seemed to never stop. Lewis passed the time by filling his journal with every shred of information he had learned during the past year and a half. He had documented 122 new animals and 178 new plants by the time spring of 1806 came around and the Corps decided to head home. 
They said goodbye to Sacagawea and her now toddler son at their Mandan village and continued on to St. Louis. When the dirty and rugged corps staggered into town on September 23rd, 1806, they were welcomed home like heroes. Thomas Jefferson rewarded Lewis with 1,600 acres of land and twice his agreed-upon salary. He also named his former secretary governor of the Louisiana Territory. Meriwether Lewis was 32 years old, and he was one of the most accomplished and universally beloved men in the United States. He had the entire world laid out before him. Whatever life he wanted, he could have. But only three years later, it all came crashing down. In early October of 1809, 35-year-old Meriwether Lewis stopped at a Tennessee tavern called Grinders Inn. It was only a pit stop on his way to Washington, D.C. On the night of October 10th, Mrs. Grinder, the innkeeper, was lying in her bed when she heard two pistols crack through the night air. When she ran to Lewis's room, she froze. The man was staggering in his doorway. She could barely recognize him. His head was mangled from a gunshot wound. Another hole poured blood from his chest. Oh, my Lord! What happened to you? Who did this? Madam, I'm hurt. Give me some water. I... By the time the sun rose on October 11th, 1809, Meriwether Lewis had passed away. America's most famous explorer was dead, but the mystery of who killed him and why would outlive him for centuries. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday to try and solve the mystery of Meriwether Lewis's death. For more information on the Lewis and Clark expedition, amongst the many sources we used, we found Undaunted Courage, Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, and the opening of the American West by Stephen Ambrose, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by River Donahue, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes K.G. Tang, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Parcasters, there's no better time than right now to make a meaningful connection with the Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. Every Wednesday, find out if there's more to love than just looks. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.